Thomas Cofield and Company. Live from the Thomas and Mac. 15M is the site. We're back. Long absence for UNLV from the building. And if Farr was here, that was a great success. Yep. Rebels are back after their uh, staycations, as Curtis Terry is on the broadcast tonight, calls it the staycations uh, over at Mandalay Bay and before that at T-Mobile. Hoping for a good crowd tonight. Playing some better basketball. I have to uh, Omaha, not out, a great team beat up. We'll see yeah. how healthy they are coming into this one. It's a 20-point spread. Uh, tonight is fan appreciation night. Selected fans in attendance will be treated to surprise gifts. Like, what? Okay. Surprise gifts throughout the game. Uh, halftime. Here we go. Here we go. The all-star stunt dogs are going to be here. That's always fun. Love dogs. And I think they'll be honoring at some point during the game the champions. The champs. I got to give a shout-out to my girl, Kelsey Olsen, just real quick. The UNLV volleyball team that won the national invitational volleyball tournament, which is like winning the NIT in basketball. If you don't make it to the dance, you go to the NIT, you win that, right? They, then they had the preseason they, when they started the preseason NIT. Not as big of a deal, but the volleyball team won that championship at Valpo in their arena, three sets to win the NIVT over the weekend. Kelsey just texted me and said, that they will be honored at tonight's game. And I want to give a shout-out to Kelsey just because this is a young lady who has worked so hard, Steve, throughout town, graduated from UNLV, um, was a SID assistant. She did some uh, internships and stuff with the, with the Aces. She wasn't sure if she was going to go back east. She tried her hand in PR in a, on a local level. She finally put a picture not too long ago on social media of her in front of UNLV campus just ch- just saying, living my dream job, this is where I want to be, this is, I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. And her first team that, that's hers as a full-time employee, as a sports information director for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, they win the title. And I couldn't be more proud and happy for Kelsey because she works really hard. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Five at Five, number five. Very uh, jovial, upbeat, energetic. Marcus Arroyo was on the uh, show earlier today to open things up at 3 o'clock. He also did a 1 o'clock press conference. He was bouncing off the freaking walls. I don't think he's a uh, coffee guy, but uh, he seems to be. Do you think he drinks energy drinks? I have no idea what he does, but when he gets going, he gets going. Well, he's a former athlete, and he's in good shape. I almost there was a point in time where he remember he said something about you know uh, if they're late the the discipline the regimen we got to learn about them if they don't there was a point but I didn't want to cut his train of thought but he was like you know if if, if they're if they're if they're not if they're not a uh, weightlifting guy they they can't get him into lift weights I was gonna say <laughs> let me help you out with that there but by, he, the, by the way how does how does it work in the bro world where, when it comes to lifting weights and like working out because you you made a connection with uh, Damon. And I was kind of wondering, I'm like, uh, how did this whole, th- how did you, how did you, and I don't mean this like insulting, yes. how do you set up a bro weightlifting date? So, Demond, Demond, Demond. Ari, right, aren't you curious? Because like, we're not going to do it. I know that. I'm not curious. <laughs> no. Ari has a tough time lifting the headphones. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Ari, will you approach Arroyo at some point? I, I told a story about, I actually said it to Arroyo, there there was a uh, – I talked to him after practice, right? I finished up talking to a player. I walk in the 
Fertitta Football Center, and I look to my right, and there's a guy lifting, and I felt like I was invading space, and it was a royal lifting, and I'm like, eh. like I kind of like ran out of the building. I'm like, sorry. So Demond, this does is your st- private time, and now media guys and you know walking by you. You know, Demond does some stuff with the Raiders, and there's t- and, you know he's buff, he's big, right? So I'll say to him, when are we going to get session, dude? When are we going to? When are we going to? And there's a guy who works for the Raiders who writes Levi Edwards. I've always said that to him. It's like, hey, when are we going to get set? When are we going to lift? And he'll say, whenever you're ready. So there was one morning I happened to be in doing the press box, and I came and I ran to the restroom, and DeMond caught me in the hallway, and he was like, yo, what are you doing after the show? What do you got going? And it was funny because Q come running out of his office. He goes, damn, you squaring up on Willie? What's, yep. what's going on? He's squaring. Uh, so showdown. It, it just had, he goes, hey, I got time. If you got time after the show. And I, and I really didn't, but I could. It was just one of those ones where we could only sneak in probably one or two exercises per, per you know, on a push day. You're doing chest. You're doing front delts. You're doing triceps. So I was like, I could probably get in for about a 45-minute, 50-minute, but I got to be at, in and out within an hour, like, Walk in and out, not an hour workout. He was like, okay. So that's how that's how that started. But it's more or less you can just tell who lifts and who doesn't. He'd be like, yo, let's get a session. You look like you know, you look like you lift. You look like you're in good shape. You you want to get a lift in. Like I would never say that to you or Ari. Number four. <laughs> What's so uh, while UNLV is feeling good about its recruiting class, its returnees. Uh, not feeling good about close losses, but they were a lot closer to having a pretty solid season uh, had it not been for the uh, 0-6 in games inside of eight points. I'm not saying UNLV is going to catch the Reno football program this next season, but my God, this new coach has a lot of work to do because you tell me, did Jay Norvell do anything wrong over the last week or so? He took six of the commits from Reno that he had committed He's now got him at Colorado State. If folks don't know, uh, Nevada lost its coach, Jane Orvell, in a surprise move. He tripled the salary to Colorado State. Now, on top of that, Willie, it's one thing to play, you know, dirty pool with the commits. Hell, you know, they, they, they're not committing just to go to the school. It's Reno, too. Uh, they're committing to go play for the coach. Right. Then he freaking raided the actual roster, which if, if I were a Reno fan, I would be pissed off. But outside of that, I'm not sure that he did anything wrong. Did he? he? Did? No, because he didn't raid. He didn't raid the the. Well, he the, did. The, the, he, he did. He, he got, didn't. He got they, their left tackle. He got two of their best. No, receivers. what I'm saying though he is, got, got what a I'm great saying defensive is, player off the roster. Listen, what I'm saying is, is those players obviously didn't want to stay. They were already upset, and we made this. We brought this up earlier. We were talking uh, a little bit off the air, you and I, and I said to you because you had said here's what we're going to be talking about and I said to you look I don't think that Norvell did anything wrong because these guys from uh, from somebody that I spoke to up there a former student athlete the players were really upset when he left not at him they were upset for the fact that he he had to make that decision they loved playing for him so they bought the narrative that he was not supported at that school I'm assuming or they just said I want to go play for him I mean, the transfer portal is a new thing. I mean, it's like, hey, we're leaving. We're going. We're gone. So I, I they want to play for that coach. They're going to go play for that coach. If they're his commits, then and you know what? And here's another thing. Just to, just Here we go. <laughs> when a new coach comes in, there's no guarantee that that coach is going to use Good those point. players. Anyway, all due respect to Marcus Arroyo, he had to rebuild the culture from Tony's program. 
There were certain players that may have started for Tony that didn't start for Marcus. They eventually left. Now he's got. Now he's in his third year. He's got his kids, his program. This is actually a so, great point by Willie, and it's been brought up before, and we'll probably ask Caleb Herring when he's up in a little bit. Uh, when you switch from one coach to another, you are, no matter who you are, you are not guaranteed to be in the same exact position in terms of playing time with the new coach. And that happened. The Sanford switch to Bobby Houck. Yep. The roster for UNLV at the time were like, wow, there were some big changes there. How, there were some guys Houck did not like. Well, hell, when Arroyo came in, right? These last couple of years, there are some guys who played a lot a couple of years ago in Malachi Salou and uh, you know, Farrell Hester, and now they're both in the transfer portal. They just they didn't play a whole lot. So you, you're not – even if – I mean, I think the, the, the Reno left tackle was going to be the Reno left tackle. Like, he's, he's an NFL prospect. Yeah. I think some of the receivers would have definitely played. But you are guaranteed nothing when there is a regime change. No, they're coming in, and they're gonna they're they're going to see you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna do like what Marcus said. They're gonna check everybody's attitude on and off the field in the classroom. They, if if these guys love Jay Norvell, they're already gonna be salty, so they may have a bad attitude. The fact of the matter is, I mean, look at the end of Tony Sanchez's era, right? Kenyon Oblad, I think, had sort of worked himself into be the starting quarterback, and he probably would have been, if Tony would have been given that final year, the first year over at Allegiant, even though it was a COVID year, it probably would have been Oblad to at least start the season. Oblad's now at Dixie State. Yep. So it's uh, nothing Kenyon against went Marcus. From, Kenyon nothing. went from possible one to number five quarterback. Right. It just there was the one it just game, was not the it was not the same blend. There was the one game that and I don't remember who they were playing at Allegiant, and we were still in Zoom sessions, and I remember asking Marcus that. I said, we're, I'm looking at the depth chart, and you, you went from this quarterback to this quarterback, and then you didn't you just leapfrog Kenyon, and he's just sitting there on the bench. He didn't even, he wouldn't even stand up. So what? where is he? And he said, Kenyon's working every single day hard at practice, and that was the answer. So it's nothing against the coach. It's nothing against the kid, but that's just what happens when a regime changes. And the fact of the matter is there's a new regime at Nevada, UNR, whatever you want to call it. There's a new regime up in Reno. A lot of those players don't want to risk the chance. They want to play for a coach that knows what they're capable of doing. They at least know that they have a legitimate shot at Colorado State. Number three. What a way to start the road trip for the Vegas Golden Knights. 4-1 victory over the Bruins. Can they keep the momentum going? And more importantly, do the Knights now have to be a little bit wary of the COVID issues across the NHL because there's been some contacts in recent games? This is the last thing the Knights need because they're they're on a roll. They are on a roll. Well, they're 17-11 now, you know, after a lot of people jump ship early in the season. And we know who you are when you weren't showing up at the Fortress. They're on a roll right now. The last thing they need to do now that they're getting healthy is have some sort of freaking COVID issues, like bigger COVID issues. They're they're alone in third place. Okay, they they've got thirty four points. They're two back of Calgary, three back of Anaheim. First place, Anaheim. The Ducks, a team that a month and a half ago I'm sitting there watching it. T-Mobile, looking to my left, looking to my right, talking to Danny Webster and going. Uh, dude, remember the, with, this is the team where we all we would be, feel sorry for because all they had was John Gibson. Well, this is a team that's in first place. So yes, Vegas doesn't want to lose its momentum. It wants to keep playing. So they're they're going to be, you know, even a, probably a little bit stricter. And I don't mean by George McPhee or Kelly McCrimmon laying down the law. I think by their own common sense. Hey, things are ramping up. Um, as you mentioned earlier off the air, post holidays. Right, making sure everybody's doing their part to stay healthy. 
Because of the fact of the matter is, no matter whether you take this virus serious or not, if you get it to the lesser degree or a more degree, you are out of commission until you don't have it. So regardless of how you look at it, if you contract it, then you're down for the count. So they're playing well because they're getting healthy. And those the, that top line is playing well. Stevenson between Stone and Pacioretty. Pacioretty's on a tear. Stevenson's playing well. Carlson line, back to playing well with or with him back in the lineup between Marchesaw and Riley Smith. I think you're seeing inspired play by guys like Riley Smith and Braden McNabb who know that, hey, Jack Eichel's coming in February, and we got to make room for that salary. Those are two unco- upcoming unrestricted free agents, and they need to make room. Those are guys that don't want to go anywhere. Both have said they want to end their careers in Las Vegas. Everybody wants to play here. Everybody wants to stay here. So you're seeing a lot of inspired play by a very good um, hockey team that was co-favored to win the Western Conference when this season started and just got hit by a nasty injury bug and some COVID issues. Right now, it's looking really good. Number two. Man, I'm excited about this one. We got 12 days of Christmas. Love it. What the Knights have their uh, 21 days of giving. Uh, Cofield and Company will have its 30 days of Raiders coaching cornucopia. Every day. Every day. One of you guys is going to find another blog with no connections to reality, <laughs> no connections to anyone with the Raiders, yeah. no connections to any any uh, real NFL insiders, and I mean this is the low hanging fruit that people love. So before I go on ripping it. Uh, latest list that's out. Eight college coaches who could be the next head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. I read through the list. Five or six are completely absurd. And I will leave Las Vegas. I'm not going to do that. but I will be very angry, and I'm not even a Raiders fan, if one of these jabronis got the job. That's a strong word. I'm they're, not, they're not NFL coaches in my mind. The list includes yep. Dabo Sweeney. I think that would be fascinating and kind of funny. Iowa State head coach Matt Campbell. I don't think he's going to make the move to the NFL. Mike Leach, stop right now. That is ridiculous. Uh, Mike, Mike Leach is not a player's guy, and he's such a goofy character. He'd be universally laughed at and panned yeah, in the National Football League. He'd be fun. Row the boat guy, stop with P.J. Fleck. That ain't going to happen. Jeff Halfley is an interesting name, but I don't think the B.C. coach is ready for a jump to the National Football League. Ryan Day is actually the most intriguing because I do believe there's going to be multiple teams that we'll talk to. The Ohio State head coach. And, of course, Jim Harbaugh is on the list. That's my thing. But will you let Harbaugh come in? And as, you know, Bill Parcells talked about the kitchen and the shopping and the chef and all that stuff, are you going to let Jim Harbaugh come in and run an entire organization? I would be a little bit nervous about that. Eight college coaches, almost all of which have no shot at the job. Did Jim Let's Harbaugh blog it, baby. Have, did Jim Harbaugh have – all that, all of that in San Francisco? He did not. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing with Harbaugh was that, uh, he, I mean, Mark Davis is a completely different owner than Jed York was at the time. Uh, there were some rumored, like, classic clashes between the two of them. So uh, Harbaugh to me is a, he's in a very interesting position because I think he's in a position to demand Full control, but I don't think he can handle full control. Okay, so let me let me compare the two names because right after Harbaugh's name on this list is Nick Saban. And 
Whereas, I I by the way, I didn't even get to that one. So, so the, what is so, near seventy-year-old Nick Saban? So the pure arrogance of Nick Saban that would come in and want more control than Mark Davis. I think here's one thing that we have to take in consideration. I think that after everything that's taken place this year, not because of it, but just the, the it's almost like the the culmination. Mark Davis has learned with John Gruden coming in, getting rid of Reggie, bringing in Mike Mayock, and everything that's taken place, the draft picks, the failed draft picks, right? Just everything that's taken place. I don't think that Mark Davis is going to let any college coach or any coaching candidate come in and tell him, unless you come, uh, I got news for you. There's only two names in the top of my list, at the top of my head right now, that can come in and dictate to Mark Davis and say, this is what I want or screw you. One is coaching the New England Patriots and one is coaching the Pittsburgh Steelers. There's no other coach that's going to dictate to Mark Davis, including Jim Harbaugh. And and Mark Davis, I think he's learned his lesson where, okay, Slow your roll. We're going to get a coach that comes in to coach. We're going to get a general manager that comes in to manage, and that's how it's going to be. Unless you're coming in with Super Bowl titles and with a resume like Mike Tomlin and Bill Belichick, shut up. Number one. Coming up, we'll uh, break down the convo that Colin Cowherd was throwing out yesterday that Derek Carr is worth a lot, and Derek Carr should know this, and Derek Carr needs to go to the Raiders and go, you know what, I want out. It's the Big Five at Five, brought to you by Battleborn Injury Lawyers. If you've been injured, call Justin Watkins at Battleborn Injury Lawyers, 570-9000. Cofield and Company, Thomas and Mack, 5 o'clock hour is here. Caleb Herring's coming up in about 10 minutes. We'll break down a little more on the UNLV signees today, a lot more on the Raiders and the future and how all these teams are going to react this weekend to roster decimation because of COVID. Uh, yesterday, are you whispering in the back? We got an echo? Uh, Colin Coward was talking about Derek Carr and what he should do with the Raiders. Uh, here he is saying uh, maybe the, the time has come that the Raiders flip Carr for what he thinks could be a lot. What is Derek Carr worth? Oh, a lot. A lot. Because we got nine teams, and I'm not counting Atlanta, who are looking for a quarterback. So there's a story this morning about Derek Carr the Raiders hit a new low in Kansas City. Does Derek Carr deserve better? Yes, of course he does. Yeah, there's a bunch of franchises out there that are in a piss-poor position with a quarterback, or I think even better match for a guy like Carr would be the franchises that are losing their quarterback, don't have the bridge guy, don't have the young guy in place, and have expectations where they're not going back to, like, four wins and a complete teardown. Keep going, Colin. Of course he deserves better than a classically dysfunctional NFL franchise. But Matt Stafford, who had two years left on his contract, did something about it. He went to ownership and just said, get me out of here. Two years left. Derek Carr's got one year left. Would he be willing to go to Mark Davis and say, get me out of here? Derek Carr said he wants to be a Raider for life. Is this season the final straw where he's going to change his mind, go somewhere else, greener pastures, better organization, and get that big contract and win? Explain to me what Mark Davis John Gruden, Mike Mayock, what, tell me what they didn't do that comparing this situation to Matthew Stafford and the Detroit Lions. What, what didn't they do? They, they thought that they were doing the best they could. They drafted a kid 
that they, they didn't know that the kid was going to get in a car and drive 100 and, you know, some odd miles an hour and get in, a, in an accident, RIP Tina Tintor. They, they did not – he had a terrible rookie season, but then he emerged. They, this, this was supposed to be their deepest receiving core. It's not – when you say he deserves better, he deserves better than what's been sort of just thrust upon him this season – Nobody knew about the John Gruden emails. Nobody imagined what was going to the tragedy that was going to take place. So it's not as if you can't compare the two franchises when the Raiders were last year. They were winning, and I've said this before. The defense collapsed on him last year. This year, he's second. He's seventy-four yards away from having a four-thousand-yard season. Right. right so I think that the the perfect comparison is Matt Stafford, who was on a team that mostly won six and seven games every year. I mean, it's they look like similar situations to me. Yeah, but I, I think that – We're not just talking about this year. It's been it's been the time he's here. You know, not, not necessarily Vegas, but with the Raiders, and they just haven't been able to get over the top. Now, there are people around the corner. There are a lot of people who think, hey, a lot of that is on car. Well, we're finding out. Matt Stafford with a good organization, an aggressive organization, good coaches, a good GM. Now Matt Stafford is a winner. Cofield and Company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas. This Christmas, the fireside is blazing bright. We're caroling through the night. And this Christmas will be a very special Christmas for me. Cofield and Company. All right, gift-giving tonight, fan appreciation night. Random fans just going to get gifts at the UNLV games. Not for me. It's from the UNLV Brass. Game's coming up 7 o'clock, so come on down. Omaha is in town. The Rebels have uh, two games here to get ready for San Diego State on January 1st. All right, let's continue our car conversation because Colin Coward opened up the discussion yesterday saying that Derek Carr deserves better. Maybe he should go to Mark Davis and say, you know what? I want to be moved. Uh, according to Collins' numbers, he thinks there's nine teams out there that could use a quarterback. Caleb Herring is in. What's up, Caleb? What's up, guys? How you doing? We're pretty good. So what do you think about you know looking at Carr in the future? Uh, first on the player side, should Derek Carr look at this and just go, you know what, I see what Matt Stafford's doing with the Rams. I want that. I think I'm going to ask MD for a trip out of town. Yeah, I, I think there's there's absolutely every reason to think he would consider it. I know he said he'd be a, a Raider for life, and that's what everybody's supposed to say um, in his situation, I guess. Uh, it's the right thing to say. But in his own career aspirations, you got to be wondering if he's his desire to win will overcome. And if you kind of read the playing field and say, maybe it's better to kind of deal myself, so to speak, and end up in a place that in a position that's uh, better for me to win. And Matt Stafford is actually the, the best example of it in the most recent times. Um, you got guys like Tom Brady, who at, not in trade way, but taking advantage of free agency, that kind of looked at where they wanted to end up and, and made it happen. Um, and I think Derek Carr can kind of do the same thing and find a spot with a, I'd say, a ready-made team that's willing to to take him um, and and trade for him if they have to for that last year just to get him into their into their fold. Um, I, I I would love that for Derek Carr. I've been a fan of his as as a player 
um, for basically his whole professional career. And I've always thought that he's getting the short end of the stick when you're talking about his his position and, and the place of quarterback elites and, and whatnot um, because of his surroundings, because the Raiders defense has not held up its end of the bargain, because the receiving core has been so inconsistent throughout his career, things like that. So you want to see him get a chance somewhere and see possibly if he can right the wrongs of his career and, and, and win, which has been the knock on his career so far. So um, I'd say that that would probably be itching in the back of he and his his brother his, and in the back of his head to make kind of weigh their options and see if that's something they want to do and approach management in that way. Caleb, is it fair to put any part of this season on Derek Carr? As far as uh, his performance, no, absolutely. And I think the Raiders this year for the Raiders was uh, was just not what anyone would have expected. You got one of the what will go down as one of the craziest scandals of all time with the head coach who's currently in the lawsuit with with the NFL and things like that. Um, you got the Henry Ruggs incidents, which we are all familiar with, um, just kind of decimated things. And the, to even overcome that and manage to get two wins after that um, was just crazy. Um, so, no, you don't, you don't necessarily put what is a lance. I mean, there's still time on the clock, so to speak. There's still games left to be played. But this season, the train wreck that it became had nothing to do with Derek Carr. He was playing at an MVP level for – most of the beginning of the season um so it absolutely not Derek Carr's fault if that's what you mean by that um but it will go down and this is the way history remembers people and this is what I think Carr in the later stages of his career is probably going to be thinking um your legacy is going to be not remembered by oh this happened on the side and that's why just like the rest of his career has been it's not that Derek Carr was good, but he's surrounded by a bad cast. No, the knock is Derek Carr can't win. No matter how bad the Raiders were during the time Derek Carr was there, the knock on Carr is that he can't win for whatever reason. Um, so he understands that. So the history w- books will not remember it as, oh, the Ruggs incidents, the, you know, the Gruden incident. No, it's going to be Derek Carr couldn't get it done when he had the tools all around him and uh, things like that. So I think in the, in the realistic way, no, you can't fault him for what happened this year, but that's just the way history's going to remember it. Well, and the tools that he had around him was a deep receiving core this year. is supposed to be the deepest that he's had. Problem was that they also came in with a very inexperienced, rebuilt offensive line. And the fact of the matter is, every game it was a it was a it was a um, a penalty at the wrong time. It was uh, you know uh, a blown a blown block allowing someone to come through the line of scrimmage. So that part um, wasn't his fault either. And I, I agree, they're, they're, they're going to look at the quarterback. That's, that's, the, that's the guy. It's just like that I've argued in the hockey world with Marc-Andre Fleury, right? He was the goalie three of the four years, the starting goaltender. They didn't win the Stanley Cup. They, the Raiders haven't been to the, Super, or to the playoffs. Derek Carr is the quarterback. Uh, one person that's having a decent season, and he's emerged at the go-to target. And while everybody's showering praise upon him, he's saying it doesn't matter because we're not getting wins, so I really don't want to talk about myself as Hunter Renfro, but he is having an outstanding season. Um, when you have someone like that that you can count on, like Derek Carr does, um, it's got it's it's got to bring some sort of comfort knowing that you have that crutch, that one guy that you have the chemistry, be, especially with Darren Waller being out. It does. It feels good uh, to have a Renfro type guy. I know the guy who I always compare Renfro or guys like him to um, as far as dependability is 
I grew up watching Ricky, Ricky Prohl, and he was one of those guys who was just a steady force on the receiving core. And I, people probably are like, who, Ricky Prohl? What the heck are you talking about? It's not like he's known as the greatest receiver of all time. And I don't think Hunter Renfro is um, going to be a, a true number one option in his career. It's just not the way he, he plays. It's not the style of what he brings to the table as far as a number one deep threat with all the stats to match it. Um, but Renfro is definitely a reliable target. And because of necessity with Ruggs being down, Waller um, being injured as well, um, those things, he's, he's sprouted up as more of a, a go-to guy. Um, but when you're talking about, you know, the pieces he has around him, Darren Waller's the best receiver on the team, um, and he's a tight end. And everybody else, even with Ruggs having the year he was having up until his incident, um, it, it, you, you look at that roster and you say there's still a lot of question marks of if they can be. They're not – nobody's established in that receiving core outside of Waller and Hunter Renfro um, for that matter. But, so, but that, to me, that doesn't – say you have a, a, a stacked wide receiver core. You know, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that. And then uh, on top of that, you have the offensive line that was kind of hit or miss all season long. Wasn't able to protect Carr. And thankfully, Carr hit some of that with his ability to get rid of the ball quickly. But the Raiders, b- by no means, were a finished product. And I think if there's a little bit of fool's gold with the close wins that they had early in the season, I know against the Dolphins and the Ravens, um, that this season could have very easily been sliding the other way early on. So it's not like the, the Raiders were a complete project and then the, the wheels came off the track. No, there's still a lot of question marks that weren't answered yet. And Derek Carr was the only thing that you pretty much knew you had. The quarterback and, and your tight end were for sure things that you had. The defense had questions. Some of the receivers, Ruggs had questions. Edwards had questions. These guys still had questions on their roster. And I don't think if you're looking at the, the roster that they had as far as the skill position goes, they were not the best that they could have been, and that was on management's decision-making, right? I mean, you look at the two receivers that went after Henry Ruggs in that draft, and we'll always, I'll always go back to that. That was a complete shock to me um, back in the, with Judy and, um, and, and Jefferson and the guys that now are in that same class as Ruggs that are just dominating, it seems, from their position. So um, the Raiders weren't a finished product, um, and I think this season kind of derailed in a, in a much more ca- catastrophic way, but I don't think – I trusted the Raiders any more than um, than anybody else when it came down to crunch time and playoff time. If, if you're talking about the Chiefs and even the Chargers being division leaders and things like that, I don't I don't see it. But Carr, I think, was the piece that was uh, for sure. You have a quarterback that you can work with, that you can win with if you have a team around them. Caleb Herring's with us. All right, real quick on the uh, UNLV recruiting class, and uh, you and I will uh, we'll probably do a podcast coming up and go through the entire class. Uh, what stood out for you? They got a quarterback and a local in uh, Jaden. Mayava and pretty good group of, uh, and they didn't announce the transfer portal guys officially, but they've got some JUCO guys in. They've got a bunch of plug-and-play guys, we think, in Darius Johnson on the defensive line, outside linebacker Isaiah Sales, Fred Tompkins at linebacker, and Jeff Weimer, a wide receiver. Yeah, so that like you said, those plug-and-play guys probably popped the most and where they ended up being in those positions. I don't know if that changed with the Jacoby women transfer or things like that, but you see the inside linebacker, outside linebacker, both of those positions have senior transfers or upperclassmen that should be projected to be public uh, or plug-and-play guys. Frederick, Fred Tompkins, actually looking at his tape from City College of San Francisco, looks a lot like, as far as his build, uh, like – what we saw from from Winman, right? The Jacob, his size at least, his speed, and maybe the the instincts on the field not quite as as good as Jacoby's were. But Tompkins in the inside linebacker, it looks like it obviously to me, I would say a replacement for what you're going to be missing with Jacoby in the middle of that defense uh, next year. 
Um, uh, one that popped to me, and obviously the local guy, Jaden, staying at quarterback, he's built just like I was when I graduated. So, I mean, just he put up some stats against modern day and played well. So, obviously the quarterback room is going to have competition. We're, we're aware of that going into the next year. Um, but Jeff Weimer, uh, the wide receiver 6'2", um, City College of San Francisco as well. I, that one kind of stuck out to me because the receiving core, while it's young, it was very inconsistent throughout the season with injuries and, and drops and things like that. We'll see if, uh, you know, the receiving core actually can help out the receivers with additions like this with Weimer. Um, some ni- a nice size, nice build looking at him. I mean, not a, not a burner necessarily down the field, but some veteran leadership to come into the wide receiver room that was unexpected. We'll see, though. Not very many names um, on the early signing list. Hopefully in February or, you know, after the, the official national signing day, we'll, we'll give, get a better idea of who's going to be expected to play where. But uh, those, those senior transfers are definitely going to look to be plug-and-play players and will be relied upon a lot with, with guys like Jacoby leaving and some of the other, other roster attrition that's going to happen. Yeah, Royo said today they could be bringing in 15 to 20 more. Uh, late signees using the transfer portal and JUCO and, you know, making up for roster attrition. I think they've got nine players. Uh, from the Rebels program that are actually in the transfer portal on the way out. So there's a lot more to be done. And uh, they showed a couple of years ago they're confident that they can recruit. They want to be able to play the field, have openings, have flexibility. Last minute here, I just wanted you to jump in on the Jay Norvell, Colorado State, taking you know upwards of like 14, 15 guys, including commits, from Reno. Um, your thoughts on this, because Willie brought up a good point earlier. While people are looking at it like, oh, Jay Norvell screwed over the Reno football program, all of those kids have no idea what the new coach wants. Absolutely no idea. And what, what you're seeing, I think, it, not just with Norvell, but in college football in general, because the same thing's happening with Oklahoma and USC, right, with a bunch of guys leaving and following the coach, is that the coaches are now becoming more influential than the programs. And that's, that's kind of a first, right, where the, the coaches now are the names that attract these players. And it makes sense because they're the ones recruiting. They're the ones who have plans laid out for what this kid's future is going to be. So they trust that more than the institutions themselves. And that kind of just shows you how things are flipping on them on their heads in, in the world of college sports, where the name USC or the name Notre Dame or the name Oklahoma lists all these other historic names of schools doesn't do it. It's not enough to just say we're the Ohio State anymore. You have to have a coach's name attached to that with some credibility and some, I guess, media savvy, some know-how and how to, I guess I'll just say it bluntly, how to trick guys into coming wherever they are. So it's 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 kind of interesting to me to watch it happen because the coaches are now having more power and more influence on the college landscape than the universities. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that swings the tide for the little guy schools. If, you know, a big guy name, let's just say somebody from a, a, a world renowned or, or or acclaimed name steps down the ranks to a group of five team. Do now all those commits follow him that far? Is it hmm. is the name big enough to make that transition happen? Who knows? We'll see. But the coaches' names are definitely carrying more weight now than the in the actual program. So I'm excited to see what it happens. And you know, you can say what you want about Norvell doing what he has to do, but he's looking for his own success. And the program's got to find a way to recover and rebuild. Caleb, we appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, guys, take it easy. Have a good one. There he is, Football Insider Caleb Herring up next. Down the stretch, we get you ready for Running the Rebels taking on Omaha tonight, 7 o'clock start right here at the Thomas & Mac. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Cofield and Company presents... Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bang up, Grab bag. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Only on ESPN Las Vegas. Stick your hand in there, dude. 
630, running Rebel warm-up. Curtis Terry, John Sandler coming up in just a little bit. Let's get you ready for the UNLV game tonight. I had a good conversation the other day with Donovan Williams. Breakout game 32 in the last tilt, and he shot the heck out of the ball. He's actually been shooting well all year, and we were talking about him working on a shot in practice and you know, how his shot is developing this year. I mean, it's coming along. I think that was a big question that people had about me coming here. Um, I know how my numbers were in my first two years of college, so I think over the summer and, you know, in between when I got here and once I got here, like, that's been kind of a main focus for me is to, you know, really prove to people that, you know, with the opportunities that the coaching staff and the team here has given me that, you know, shooting isn't, you know, isn't a weakness for me. How hard is it to become a good shooter if you're not actually getting in games? Um, it's, it's hard. You know, I think when people, when people look at percentages and they look at numbers, they just see it. So, you know, you go and you say, oh, this guy's a 20% three-point shooter or he's 19 or whatever. And you look and, you know, he gets up maybe one, maybe two a game. And so the way shooting is, I think for me and I think a lot of shooters will tell you, it's a rhythm thing. So if you're not really in a rhythm, if you get up one, three a game, I mean, if you go 0 for 1 one game, maybe 1 for 1 the next game, 0 for 1, like, they add up. And so those percentages, you're not getting a, I guess I would say you're not getting a fair sample size of who a shooter actually is. Because, I mean, one attempt per game doesn't really define what kind of a shooter someone is. Do you have a favorite spot from the three-point line where, you know, you'd, you'd like to mostly catch and shoot there? Um, not really. Uh, I think the, there's a, not really a joke, but there's a thing going on between me and a lot of people that I know just about the corner three that gets you a million dollars. So, um, <laughs> you know, you definitely want to be able to make the corner three for sure. Uh, that's kind of the way the game is being played. But I think for me, honestly, um, I kind of treat shooting like I treat like my game overall. I don't want to have just one spot. Right. I want to be able to shoot from, you know, the corners, the wings, the top wherever kind of so I, don't, I wouldn't really say I have a favorite spot on the court. Do you know if teammates have a favorite spot where you know on the, the drive and kick offense like oh, sometimes yeah. hey you know what hey that guy's in the corner I know he loves shooting from the corner. No absolutely like uh, with Justin Webster like I know like he's he's one of our better shooters so we know you know when we're driving and we're kicking if he's in the corner we have a really good chance of making that shot so I think uh, with guys like Josh Baker uh, Justin Webster those are the guys that you look at to be you know Josh he shot 50% last year from three. So he's a he's a guy that we're really looking forward to, you know, really catching, getting hot, catching his, uh, in his feet under him and letting the game slow down for him as the season goes along. But, you know, with those guys, you know, like, it's the corners for the most part. So what do you think a 32-point game, like, how are you feeling after it? And what do you think it does for, for your teammates in terms of their confidence to throw you the ball? Um, honestly, I don't really know. Like, I always, I, I always thought, you know, I got into a point to where I didn't know if 30 points were in the cards for me in college. Um, and so when it happened, honestly, still to this day, like, still in this moment, like, I still don't really know how to feel because it didn't feel like I scored 30 points. It just kind of felt like I was just playing basketball. So, I mean, for me, I think with, with a lot of the guys, like, once they saw that and they saw how I was able to, you know, kind of work my way around the defense and kind of make, you know, make plays, I think that gives them confidence to know, like, you know, when teams are focusing on Bryce or they're focusing on Royce or anybody that's going on, like, we know, okay, we have another option. Like, we have someone that, you know, when in doubt, um, you know, we have guys, we have players. And it's not just me. Everybody, you know, there's a lot of guys capable on this team of having nights like that. So I think for me, I think the game, Seattle game, Mike had 21. So, you know, everybody's capable and they have that ability. It's just about being in the, the right spot and just, you know, I think just kind of just playing, not being too much in your head about it. 
When's the last time you had 32? Uh, it might have been like 2018. I know the last time I scored 30 points was in high school. Yeah. Um, it might have been my junior year of high school, honestly. So uh, I, I want to say 2018. What so do you think you did? You remember what you did that night? Was it a lot of drive and finish near the rim? Was it a lot of shooting? Um, I distinctly remember I was five for six from the three-point line yeah. <laughs> that game. Um, but I think a lot of it, if I actually go back and watch the film, it'll probably look a lot like last, uh, yeah. the Hartford game, like catch and shoot threes and then just, you know, driving and attacking the rim. I think that's the biggest thing that not really I got away from, but that was the biggest thing I had really needed to focus more on is attacking that rim. And I think with that Hartford game, I just felt comfortable. You know, I didn't feel like the guys that, you know, that they had on court, no disrespect to them, but I think as a team, you know, we had the ability to get downhill and make plays for each other. So I think for me, I just kind of took, took full advantage of it. So end of the game, you guys are trying to have some fun. Right? Yeah. You try to throw an alley oop yeah. off the glass, right? Uh, Coach Kruger said, Yeah, I would like that to go, but yeah. it needs to go. Did you notice the stare down? Because I was watching him and, man, he was intense. I was oh, like, yeah. I think Donovan's in trouble. Yeah, no, with, um, with Coach Kruger, is, you know, whenever you make a play, like, he's, he's gained that reputation on the team. So, like, whenever you make a bonehead play, like, you know the stare down is there. So it's like, I think the one thing that I, I developed over my years of playing basketball is, like, if I mess up on the court, I don't, I don't look to the bench, you know, I don't, because I know something's going on on the bench, whether it's a coach, whether it's a player, something's going on to where it's like, it may, it may throw you off course. So for me, it's like, I didn't like, when I did it, I didn't even look to Coach Cooper. I just looked straight at Royce. I was like, yo, Royce, like, my bad, man. Have you, have you done that in practice? Yeah. Where you, you guys executed yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually kind of interesting. Um, you guys tried a lot of alley-oops yeah. in the game, and you've had tr some trouble finishing. Like, how tough are those plays? Is that a feel thing? Yeah, it's definitely a feel thing. I think it's also a, I think it's also a practice thing. You know, um, we talk a lot about pushing the ball in transition, so we want to put pressure on the defense to get back. So I think uh, those lobs that we do in the Hartford game, there were a couple of them were tough. Like Royce didn't get, I think Royce missed two of them. I missed one, then Royce missed the one that I threw him. But I think a lot of that just comes from. Like, we're doing it now. I think at first, when we were first playing, like, we were running, but we weren't really kicking it ahead. We were, like, we were running down the court, but we weren't really putting pressure on the defense to play def transition defense. So I think now the, the more we get it, it's just using our athletic gifts. Like, me and Royce especially, we run the, court, we run the full hard. And um, I think a lot of times we're probably two of the best athletes on the court. So I think that's something that we really want to, you know, impose on other teams. There you go, Donovan Williams. Hey, this could be the guy who could be the consistent running mate scoring-wise to take some pressure off of Bryce Hamilton. They combined for, what, 65 in the last game against Hartford. We'll see where the minutes go tonight. That's always interesting. This Omaha team shouldn't be a massive challenge, but if the Rebels are off their game, I'll say defensively. That's really my biggest concern the rest of the season is being consistent defensively, and that means chasing guys off the three-point line, guarding the defensive boards. This team has a lot of challenges. Coming up next... We got a run and rebel warm up in just a little bit. Curtis Terry, John Sandler. Thanks to Ari. Thanks, Willie. Yes, Appreciate sir. it. Thanks to Angel. We haven't seen him in a while. And thanks to the folks here at the TM, and especially Mark Wallington and Coach Arroyo for popping on early.